Media Masters with Paul Blanchard. Welcome to Media Masters, a series of one-to-one interviews with people at the top of the media game. Today I'm joined down the line by Toby Young, writer, social commentator, and one of the most provocative voices in Britain today. Co-founder of the hugely influential The Modern Review, Toby's magazine escapades in New York formed the basis of a best-selling memoir and film, How to Lose Friends and Alienate People. An advocate of educational reform, Toby co-founded a free school in London and most recently has become a campaigner for free speech and an opponent of lockdown measures, which he believes are infringing our liberties. Toby, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Paul. So, I mean, should we start with lockdown then? You're a, a dissenting voice in the media narrative. Would that, be, would that be fair to say? Yes, in a tiny minority at the beginning, but I think uh, the number of dissenters is gradually growing. And I think in due course uh, will be the majority. Where do you think the debate is heading? People seem to be settled on the fact that, you know, we ought to isolate as much as possible. And, and so on. What, what change do you want to see? Well, I'd like to see um, everything returning to normal and not the new normal, but the old normal as they are in Sweden, for instance. I do think that uh, the government uh, and various public health authorities, not just here, but around the world, overestimated, seriously overestimated, both the deadliness and the virulence of this particular virus um, and imposed measures uh, which were disproportionate to the threat posed by the virus, uh, including the removal of liberties, some of them dating back to the 13th century. And uh, as a believer in liberty, I think the onus of proof has to be, the burden of proof has to be on the state if it wants to remove our liberties, if it's going to suspend them, particularly if it's going to suspend them uh, indefinitely. Uh, And I don't think that burden was met in this case. I don't think that the public health threat posed by the virus was anything like as great as the government initially believed. Uh, And so I don't think they were justified in doing things like suspending the right to protest, although, as I'm sure you've noticed, that is uh, only very inconsistently applied. So if you're protesting on behalf of BLM or Extinction Rebellion, the police grant you a lot more latitude than they do if you're protesting against the lockdown. I mean, I agree with you. The rules are inconsistent and a mess, but I'm, tr- I'm trying to get to the bottom of what your sort of root opposition is to, to, to lockdown. I mean, you know, I, I try to stay at home as much as possible. I wear a mask. These seem sensible precautions. Do you object to those? I do object to people being effectively imprisoned in their homes as they were uh, during the full lockdown, um, whereby they weren't allowed to leave their homes without a reasonable excuse. I don't think that was necessary. That measure wasn't imposed in Sweden. Sweden has fewer deaths per million than the UK, has now more or less obtained herd immunity, so things can go back to normal. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any any compelling evidence that there is any relationship at all between whether or not a country locked down and the extent of COVID mortality uh, or the severity of the lockdown and the number of COVID deaths. So uh, there, there's been quite a lot of research published on this with um, you know, statisticians, economists, uh, trying to discover any signal in the noise. Is there any evidence at all that those countries which locked down actually reduced their overall COVID deaths? Uh, and did the countries which locked down more severely do a better job than those that locked down less severely? No evidence at all. If you compare the US states that locked down, the 43 US states that locked down with the seven that didn't, uh, there doesn't seem to be any pattern there at all. Uh, countries around the world which locked down, those which didn't, Belarus didn't, Sweden didn't, uh, no evidence that that increased their death tolls. Um, so, so the lockdown as a, as a measure seems to be completely ineffective. No evidence it works at suppressing the virus at all. And it had never been tried before. I think this this is a critical point that not many people realize. I think when it was first sold to us, it was sold as this is what you do in response to a global pandemic like this. This is the intelligent public health response. Never been done before. The WHO issued a report in 2019 saying if we face another pandemic, um, uh, much like the previous ones we faced in the past 10 years, for instance, the, or the past 20 years, the two other novel coronaviruses, uh, we don't recommend indiscriminately uh, quarantining entire populations, the healthy as well as the sick. Not a good idea. Similarly, in the British government's 
pandemic preparedness strategy, which our government was following up to a point before Boris did a U-turn and panicked. Uh, in that strategy, it said, no, we don't recommend quarantining entire populations. The only time it had been tried before was in Mexico City in 2009, and it was, uh, or in Mexico rather, in 2009, and it was abandoned almost immediately uh, because of the uh, mounting social and economic costs. And the problem with the lockdown, it's not just that there's this civil liberties case against it. Um, I think that, yeah, for me, that's the strongest argument against it because I'm, broadly speaking, a libertarian. But even if you're not a libertarian, I think the arguments against it, uh, there's a really good uh, uh, economic argument. Uh, did we really need to cause this catastrophic damage to our economies uh, in order to prevent this disease from spreading in order to reduce deaths. Uh, I don't think we did. Uh, it's not that I'm valuing profit before people. I don't see any link. I don't see any evidence that destroying all these profits has actually saved any lives. Um, and actually, we know uh, from an enormous amount of economic literature that global recessions cause death. Uh, we're seeing this at the moment in the developing world. We're already seeing the beginnings of uh, hundreds of thousands of people dying needlessly because of the suspension of um, public health programs like uh, screening for diarrhea, inoculation and so forth, but also the economic impact of the global economic recession in the West is having a catastrophic uh, knock-on effect in the developing world. But there's also just in our own country, I think a really powerful public health case for not locking down, not imposing these restrictions. I'm not just talking about rising rates of depression, domestic violence, uh, the murder rate creeping up, mental health crisis, um, uh, not just those things, suspension of children's education for six months, which is gonna massively exacerbate the attainment gap between advantaged and disadvantaged children. I'm talking about actual deaths, people dying, because they haven't been able to get elementary healthcare because the NHS for about four or five months became a COVID only service. You know, lots and lots of heartbreaking stories about people who can't access healthcare, particularly the elderly. The elderly were effectively told, no, we're not going to admit you to hospital if you're over 75 um, because uh, we're worried about ICU beds being overwhelmed, our care capacity being overwhelmed. So the NHS became this COVID only service. All outpatient treatments were suspended, all elective surgeries were suspended cancer screening programs were suspended. The, the, the death toll from that policy alone is gonna reach into the tens of thousands. I think a far greater number than those we've supposedly saved by imposing these measures in the first place. So whether it's a civil liberties argument, an economic argument, or even a public health argument, I think the case against the restrictions that have been imposed is absolutely overwhelming. And the problem with a lot of my journalistic colleagues is, they haven't been scrutinizing these policy decisions uh, with the vigor and intensity that they should be. I'm not quite sure why that is. I think one factor is uh, Ofcom at the very beginning of the lockdown published some coronavirus guidance cautioning broadcasters not to feature uh, critical voices, uh, questioning the wisdom of the government and public health authorities' response. They said, if you do feature these people in your programs, treat them with extreme caution. We don't want to undermine public confidence in the advice being pumped out by PHE and NHS England, even though much of that advice turned out to be wrong. We were initially advised not to wear masks. Now we're being advised to wear masks, but we weren't supposed to question it, according to Ofcom. And I think the BBC didn't feature as many dissenting voices as it might have done, partly because of this guidance. But I also think it was just groupthink, a lack of confidence amongst journalists. They thought, oh, I don't know much about epidemiology. I'm not a virologist. I'm not particularly numerate. I'll just take it on faith that when Chris Whitty and Sir Patrick balance say these things when matt hancock speaks about this i'll just take it on faith i won't question it i don't have the credentials to do that i'll just uncritically regurgitate this propaganda being pumped out of downing street didn't think of it quite like that you know they aren't quite as craven or supine but that seems to have been broadly what happened um, and i started this uh, dissenting website back at the beginning of april called lockdownskeptics.org um, and it's been become a sort of hub for skeptical voices. I'm not talking about 5G conspiracy theorists or anti-vaxxers. I'm talking about serious scientists who doubt the wisdom of the government's response, economists, financial researchers, really smart people um, uh, who just think that the government, not just here, but around the world, have made a colossal error of judgment here. And we're gradually, I think, making the case, persuading more and more people in an intelligent, thoughtful, 
grown-up way that this 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 policy really needs looking at again uh, uh, before we dig ourselves into another hole go into a second lockdown god forbid um and um it's got something like three and a half million unique visitors since the beginning of april you get about 30,000 visitors a day. So I think it is finally having an impact. Uh, and I think it's probably the best thing I've ever done as a journalist. I mean, clearly the economic consequences of COVID is, is undeniable and, and hugely damaging. Millions of people either out of work or about to lose their jobs. Do you think in terms of the motivations of, of, of Western governments, do you think even though in your view they've made an error that it's been done in good faith, either through naivete and overabundance of caution? I mean, it, it's not a, a conspiracy. Is Boris Johnson just guilty of, of foolishness? in your view yes um i'm not a conspiracy theorist i believe in hanlon's razor you know whatever can be attributed to stupidity rather than malice that's probably the explanation um <laughs> that's like a more real world version of occam's razor there it is it's a cynical version um <laughs> uh, i mean i think that i think that i mean it was a it was a series of unfortunate events my kind of broad brush analysis is that um China initially tried to suppress the news that there was an outbreak of a novel coronavirus. As you probably know, the uh, doctors in Wuhan who first raised the alarm were imprisoned, uh, locked up, uh, warned that if they repeated any of uh, this information again, uh, they'd face much more severe consequences. So the Chinese regime initially tried to suppress this information and as you know initially said no evidence of human to human transmission that was shamefully repeated by the WHO in a tweet um, and uh, then it when it became clear that actually something really was going on here um, the Chinese government then massively overreacted because it was embarrassed and it did something that I thought could only happen in a totalitarian regime like China uh, whereby it imprisoned the entire population of a Chinese province, something like 9 million people. And when I say imprisoned, I mean imprisoned, boarded them up in their homes, carted off anyone who tested positive, whether they were symptomatic or not, and effectively imprisoned them in these purpose-built quote-unquote hospitals uh, until they tested negative. I mean, an incredibly draconian, illiberal response, which I thought could only happen uh, in, a, in a totalitarian society like China's, um, and uh, I thought, well, uh, this cannot possibly be repeated. But the WHO, which is effectively uh, in the pocket of the Chinese Communist Party, that does sound like a conspiracy theory, but there's quite a lot of evidence that the WHO is extremely reluctant for a variety of reasons to criticise anything the Chinese regime does. And there was that famous example of the WH official pretending he couldn't hear when he was asked by a Taiwanese television presenter uh, why it was that the WHO refused to recognize Taiwan. Well, we know why. It's because China won't and the WHO doesn't want to cross China. But anyway, the WHO said, oh, this response by China, locking everyone up, the healthy as well as the sick, the symptomatic as well as the asymptomatic, that's a brilliant response. The rest of the world should copy that response. And in combination with various uh, shonky computer models, uh, such as the one in Imperial College, which predicted that, you know, a half a million people would die in the UK, 2.2 million in the US, if we didn't immediately follow in China's footsteps. I think governments around the world, and also, I guess, the third factor was seeing the pictures on the nightly news of the Italian um, uh, health system being overwhelmed. Uh, the, that combination of factors meant that governments around the world thought, oh, we must copy China. This is the, the WHO recommending this response. Uh, we must do this too. This is the correct way to respond to a pandemic, even though it had never been tried before. And the evidence that it was an effective way of containing a viral outbreak is threadbare at best. And interestingly, there was a paper done by a group of researchers at the OECD uh, who looked at whether or not uh, political leaders across the West actually took the time to do a proper cost-benefit analysis before imposing these draconian lockdowns. And no, they didn't. They just copied each other. Once two or three of them started doing it, the rest started doing it. It was groupthink. It was peer pressure. Really, really shocking. I mean, there was a great detail in the FT's, um, the FT did a sort of investigative report about the weeks leading up to Boris Johnson's decision to impose a lockdown on March 23rd. And the most telling detail in that investigation, I thought, was uh, they, had, they, had a, they had a report of the COBRA meeting, it wasn't even chaired by Boris, it was chaired by Michael Gove, on March 23rd, in which Michael Gove said, 
we've decided to impose a lockdown, shocked everyone else at the COBRA meeting. They didn't know this was going to happen. They thought the British government was going to wait a few weeks to see whether the more modest social distancing measures imposed on March 16th had been effective. And that was the sage advice as well. They weren't following the science at this point. It was a political decision. Um, and uh, uh, Jesse Norman MP, bless him, who was present at this meeting, uh, rather timidly asked whether the government had done a cost-benefit analysis. You know, are, are, the, are the lives we're going to save as a result of this lockdown going to outweigh the number of people we will likely kill? Is the catastrophic economic damage by doing this going to be justified by the public health benefits? Have you looked at the knock-on collateral damage that this is going to do? And is it outweighed by the benefits? Fairly straightforward question. You expect any responsible government to engage in that kind of analysis. They just gave him blank looks. They thought, what were what are you talking about? Of course we haven't. Don't be an idiot. Done without any proper considered analysis at all. No cost benefit analysis, purely political decision, uh, copying their peers around the world. I mean, it was, I hadn't, I hadn't realized the extent of the um, stupidity of our masters until this moment. And now the scales have fallen from my eyes, uh, Paul, and um, I'm, I'm, I'm just still reeling with shock. You're clearly not a conspiracy theorist. I mean, people either will agree with you or, or disagree with you. But I mean, I'm a passionate believer in free speech. I think you should have the right to to make these arguments. I'll lose listeners for having you on. It was the same with a couple of years ago when I had Katie Hopkins on the podcast. I put some difficult questions to her. But of course, people don't even listen. They say, well, if you're going to give her a platform, then I don't want to be associated with your, you know, this whole kind of um, cancel culture type thing. Presumably, you're quite comfortable emotionally with being a contrarian. Do you see it as a as a courageous thing that you're standing up for what you believe in and that other people lack that courage because I mean you you obviously come under huge amounts of, of, of attack personally yeah well I I I did experience um, my own cancellation episode at the beginning of 2018 um, so I've, I don't particularly want to refresh people's minds about this because it was a pretty uh, gruesome episode but um, uh, at the beginning of 2018 Theresa May appointed me to uh, the board of a new universities regulator called the Office for Students. I was one of you know uh, a dozen or so non-executive directors it wasn't a paid position it was you know it was a, a fairly minor post going to meet on, on a, you know, four times a year or something. Um, and um, I was appointed because of my involvement in the free schools program I co-founded first one and then three more free schools in West London um, and had sort of become very interested and involved in public education uh, and I was one of the few Tories uh, with any interest in um, uh, public education so I was you know I think one of three Tories appointed to this sort of 14 person board uh, by the Conservative government by Theresa May um, and uh, Rather unfortunately, uh, because the news of who was appointed to this new regulator was embargoed until the beginning of the year, it was released by the Department for Education at one minute after midnight. Um, it was embargoed until then. And they released this long list of names of people they'd appointed. But the Guardian decided that the reason the DfE weren't releasing this until a minute after midnight on New Year's Day 2018 was because they were embarrassed that I'd been appointed and were trying to kind of cover up the story. They were trying to sneak this in under the wire. So lots of lots of people on Twitter, lots of journalists uh, thought, we're not going to let the government get away with this. We're going to expose what's happening. This is the Tory chumocracy at work. They've given this plum position to one of their toadies in the media, totally unqualified, blah, blah, blah. Plum position. I mean, it was far from being a plum position. But every time the story kind of got repeated, uh, my role as one of, you know, 14 non-executive directors in this organization was exaggerated. I ended up becoming Theresa May's university's czar. And as my role was amplified, so the outrage increased. A petition was got up on change.org, got uh, demanding Theresa May sack me. It got 220,000 signatures. Um, there was a kind of mob of journalists on my doorstep kind of uh, waiting to kind of ambush me whenever I left. Scrolling through your Twitter from years ago. Oh, the, the, the amount of offence archaeology I was subject to uh, must be some kind of record. People were trawling back 
uh, through things I'd written in 1987, trying to find things I'd written they could pull out of context to make me look like uh, a completely unsuitable person to serve on this board. Uh, the Spectator has this digital archive of everything that's ever been printed in The Spectator, dating back to 1822. And at one point during the height of this Ferrari, the top 10 most searched articles were all by me. And this was just my detractors frenziedly combing through everything I'd written uh, that was available on Google to find evidence that I was uh, a bad person. And after eight days of this, um, with my daughter not even being able to go to school, um, I stepped down from the Office for Students, apologised for some of the more stupid, sophomoric things I'd said late at night on Twitter after a couple of glasses of wine, and thought, this will draw a line under it, I can now just get on with my life. Uh, that was naive. Um, that was like throwing a shoal of raw, a hunk of raw meat to a shoal of piranha fish. And um, I, uh, the mob who'd come for me at the Office for Students then came for all all the other organizations I was working for linked to I ended up having to step down from four positions, uh, four additional positions, so five in total, including my full-time job. I was well and truly cancelled. Um, and that was a pretty tyranny of the minority. It is the tyranny of the minority. Uh, social media enables a group of um, uh, determined activists to massively amplify their voice. It's an extraordinary megaphone. And lots and lots of institutions are very easily intimidated by these digital outrage mobs and don't understand that it's actually just a few people who are very energetically kind of tweeting away and making Facebook posts. But anyway, um, one of the consequences of that experience was that I started the Free Speech Union um, in February of this year. Uh, you know, if you talk to anyone who's gone through one of these cancellations, what they'll tell you is that it's an incredibly, a much more psychologically traumatic experience than they had imagined it would be, or when they see other people going through it, how they imagine it would be for them. Uh, you feel very isolated and alone. You know, lots of your friends who you expected to stick up for you remain silent. Some even join the mob calling for your head. It's really hard to persuade people to stick up for you. It's a primordial kind of event in which uh, suddenly a mob turns on an individual, starts chasing them, and no one else wants to get involved for fear of um, uh, the mob turning its ire on them. There's a kind of, a, a kind of instinctive defense instinct kicks in. Uh, so it's really difficult in that situation. You feel very isolated. Uh, you don't know who to turn to for good advice on, you know, PR or law. You're in need, I think, in some cases of psychological counselling. There are some examples of about half a dozen examples of people who on being cancelled had committed suicide. I never reached that point, but it was nonetheless pretty traumatic. And I thought what's needed is an organisation, an institution that people can turn to uh, if something like this happens to them for support, for psychological help, for legal advice, for PR advice. Uh, and so that was really the kind of um, uh, seed of the Free Speech Union. But one of the benefits, curiously, of having gone through an experience like this is that it's difficult for it to happen again. You know, you can't kill someone twice. I'm like the walking dead now, Paul. Um, uh, you know, and I feel I can, you know, had I not been cancelled in 2018, had I not lost five jobs, had, you know, people not already trawled through everything I'd said or written dating back 33 years, um, uh, you know, I might might have been a bit more worried about starting this Lockdown Skeptics website for fear that that might happen to me and I might lose all these other positions, these links with other charities. But because that had already happened, because, you know, the mob had done its worst, I felt they can't really come for me again. I'm like Obi-Wan Kenobi in Star Wars. <laughs> you know, they've killed me once. They can't kill me again. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think uh, I'm sort of bulletproof now. Uh, so it doesn't take much courage to be a dissenter. Uh, whatever they could take from me, they've already taken. It takes courage for other people, I think, to express their dissent. And I think that's one of the reasons, because there is such... Uh, I think, particularly in this current environment, I think people do think... I have some doubts about the wisdom of the lockdown. Not sure the rule of six is quite the right policy here. I really hope schools aren't closed again. 
but I'd better not speak up because um, if I do, people will accuse me of undermining people's confidence in the government's response in the advice being pumped out by public health authorities, and that could lead to harm. So I'll just keep stum. Uh, not even they think it'll actually lead to harm, but they, they're worried about being accused of being irresponsible. Uh, so I think there is a kind of enormous psychological pressure during a kind of public emergency like this to just toe the line, uh, to not criticize uh, the official response, government policy, for fear that they'll then be ostracized for, 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 for supposedly endangering public health. I think that's one of the reasons there hasn't been nearly as much dissent as, uh, as there might have been. And where do you think the whole sort of Twitter mob mentality, tyranny of the minority, the cancel culture thing is going to go over the medium to long term? I mean, is this something that public figures or anyone who aspires to get involved in public life is just going to have to live with forever? Or, or will society come to some kind of, uh, you know, settled agreement that, um, I mean, at the moment, like you said, there's all of these august institutions, the civil service, universities and some businesses, they, they don't, their boards are so risk averse and they, they can't cope with the modern social media where three or four highly motivated, vexatious, venal people want to, to, to attack them. You know, three or four years from now, will this not be happening anymore? Because we'll accept, you know, I think it was uh, Jack Dorsey at Twitter said, the problem is, is that society doesn't know how to, to differentiate between some guy sat in a basement on his own with a public figure and tends to value them equally, whereas in fact their, their voices aren't equal. Yes, I mean, I, 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 um, I've been shocked by just how fragile um, the liberal values of supposedly liberal institutions have turned out to be. Um, uh, the kind of uh, classic example is probably the New York Times, the most influential and powerful newspaper in the world, um, has been a bastion of liberal values um, for over a hundred years. Um, uh, but earlier this year, when uh, I'm sure most of your listeners will, will know this story, but just in case they don't, earlier this year, uh, the New York Times ran an op-ed piece by a Republican senator to, called Tom Cotton. This was at the height of the civil unrest occurring in American major American cities, uh, urging President Trump to consider sending in the military if things got any worse, to um, uh, restore law and order in America's major cities. Um, and um, there was a... There was a, a, a a rebellion amongst the junior staff. They were outraged that anyone, uh, that the New York Times should run this piece. Twitter was up in arms, outrage mobs formed up. James Bennett, the um, editor uh, who had uh, commissioned and edited this piece, ended up effectively being fired by the New York Times. Um, and that was really extraordinary. You know, for, for decades, the New York Times has published conservative voices, the occasional conservative voice uh, on its uh, comment pages. Um, and, and, you know, has stood for free speech, for diversity of opinion, for grown-up civil debate between the different sides in the American political divide. Um, but now, suddenly, in response to outrage mobs forming up, junior staff being outraged because it offended their woke sensibilities, the, the New York Times uh, brass completely capitulated and effectively said, henceforth, we're not going to be a liberal institution that stands up for free speech. From now on, you know, if, if you say something offends you, we'll sack the person uh, responsible for causing offence. I mean, a really extraordinary collapse by one of the most powerful defenders of uh, liberal values in the world. And that's just one example among countless examples. Um, you know, you see it in universities. Universities, you would expect to be the very last places to capitulate to outrage mobs claiming they've been offended by this and that. Um, uh, you know, you would expect universities of all places to stand up for freedom of speech and inquiry, intellectual freedom. But so many of them have failed the test, have immediately uh, capitulated to these activist mobs. It's extraordinary. And you know, will it end? Maybe. Um, I think organisations like the Free Speech Union can certainly help, but we need to form a coalition. There need to be other similar organisations. We're hoping to start a branch in the US. I think that will help a bit. Um, I think governments need to become a bit more robust. I think this government in particular that we have now, they could do more to defend free speech. And Boris supposedly believes in free speech, 
particularly academic free speech. And there was a line in the manifesto about doing more to protect the, 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 the intellectual freedom of academics. So perhaps they will do something. I think that would help a bit. I think maybe the initial um, power of outrage mobs on platforms like Twitter will diminish as we become a bit more jaded and cynical about them uh, in due course. You know, perhaps if this, this is a kind of uh, teething problem, we've only empowered these censorious, intolerant mobs in the first kind of 20 years of social media being part of our lives. Maybe that'll diminish in due course. Uh, I don't know, but um, we can but hope. I mean, I'm, I'm an acquaintance of David Starkey. He's been on the podcast before and uh, I actually reached out to him uh, and just offered him some support as a friend when he got cancelled uh, a month or so ago because, you know, I, I think what he said was very unfortunate. I don't defend it, but what I do object to is the kind of drumhead court-martial, you know, the summary justice that within a three and a half second clip of him within three, four days is every single, you know, professorship and members, all the things he was a member of, they all dropped him. And it's like your life can just be suddenly cancelled within two or three days on the basis of a very short audio clip. And there's no room for nuance, uh, proportionality, context. I mean, I don't think what he said was particularly pleasant, but to have his, his life completely ruined within 72 hours strikes me as a grotesque overreaction. Yes, um, I wouldn't defend what he said either. But um, like you, I thought the uh, mass cancellation of him because he'd said that was a huge uh, overreaction. It was mob justice. One of the one of the features of that episode was the words he used during a kind of uh, five second passage in a one hour interview. They were weighed more heavily on the scales of justice, mob justice, than everything else he'd done. His entire body of scholarship, uh, all the television programs he's made, the charitable work he's done for the Mary Rose Trust, everything else was, was outweighed by that unfortunate series of words he used. And that, that just seems straightforwardly unjust. Shouldn't there be a kind of more proportionate weighing up when assessing someone's character when assessing whether or not they uh, deserve this kind of treatment. Uh, but the other thing was, he apologised for it. He himself didn't try and defend what he said. He said it was inexcusable, indefensible. And one of the characteristics of cancel culture, one of the characteristics of these um, woke mobs, is that they won't forgive. There's no possibility of redemption. You can't ever re-enter you know, um, uh, the moral community once you've been expelled from it. Uh, and and it's, it's sort of like people often describe um, this movement as a sort of secular religious movement, a kind of crowdsourced secular religion fueled by social media. Um, and I think there's, there's, there's quite a lot to that. I mean, it does seem like a resurgence of the same Puritanism we saw um, in, you know, um, Massachusetts in the 17th century. There's quite a lot. Uh, there's quite quite a lot of uncanny parallels uh, between, you know, the Salem witch trials and what happens to someone like David Starkey. And we saw it again with the with McCarthyism in America in the 1950s. And it seems there are these cycles of kind of Puritanism in which Puritan feeling kind of resurges. And that seems to be what's happening at the moment. But but one of the differences uh, insofar as this is, uh, this does have some aspects, some things in common with the kind of most unattractive features of Christianity, is that at least Christ in Christianity, there is a mechanism for forgiveness. You know, there's a mechanism for redemption and readmission into the moral community. As far as the kind of the wokesters are concerned, once you've sinned, that's it. And they also don't make a distinction between the sin and the sinner. That's another great characteristic of Christianity. Yes, we don't forgive the sin, but we are willing to forgive the sinner if the sinner atones for the sin. There doesn't seem to be any scope for atonement in the kind of woke religion. Uh, and that is an extremely unattractive characteristic. And I think, you know, people are worried about the possibility of the civil unrest that broke out over the summer in America's big cities 
escalating, uh, particularly if the result of the forthcoming US presidential election is contested, if the outcome's unclear, and if Trump is unwilling to concede and Biden is unwilling to concede, you can imagine it escalating and getting much worse. But one of the things that will be fueling that civil conflict, I think, is the unwillingness of either side, actually, uh, to forgive the other, to allow for any redemption, to allow for the fact that if someone sinned, you can hate the sin, but you shouldn't hate the sinner. Uh, that was something I experienced in 2018, David Starkey experienced in this year. Uh, but it's, I think, a, a, one of the most unattractive and potentially most dangerous aspects of this new secular religion. But it's also the presumption of the automatic presumption of bad faith on the part. So, for example, if you look at Joanne Rowling, um, she, you know, I don't know enough about, uh, you know, transgender issues to even have an opinion, really. My view is people can do whatever they want as long as they're not hurting other people. It's clearly an issue she's passionate about. I read the article that she wrote. It was thoughtful. I didn't agree with some of it, but I obviously uphold her free speech rights to talk about it. But whether you agree with her or not, no one, I actually wanted to engage with her on the issue. It was straight away, she is a disgusting, transphobic, horrible bully that wants to kill transgender people. And, you know, the issue is whether, you know, you can still read Harry Potter despite the fact it was written by someone who wants to ruin the lives of trans people. And I was thinking, well, that's not the motivation of someone who just wrote a thoughtful article. She's clearly interested in an area of public policy and gender issues that I'm not interested in. But what I do know enough about is that having read her article is that it was quite thoughtful. And she's clearly coming at it from a point of view of, uh, of a passionate belief in, in tolerance, uh, you know, and free from bigotry. And it's that automatic presumption that it must be bad faith on her part, that she must be against trans people and evil, as if that's just, just you know, accepted unequivocally as the truth when nothing could be further from it. Yeah, it is. Uh, the assumption of bad faith is, um, is, as you say, very striking when you have these flare-ups, these mobbings. Um, uh, and I, I never know whether the presumption of bad faith on the part of the Twitchfork mob is in itself an expression of good faith or bad faith. When, when these frenzied activists tweet these unbelievably misogynistic and abusive things, or send messages like that, or post on notice boards, these incredibly vituperative, hate-filled, bilious comments uh, directed at JK Rowling, is it because they really do believe that she is a transphobe, that she hates trans people, that she wants trans people to commit suicide. You know, are they, when they claim these things about her, are they acting in good faith? When they assume her bad faith, are they being sincere? Or is it just a form of political activism? Have they just decided, well, we know in our heart of hearts she's probably not a bad person and doesn't really believe all these terrible things. She's not actually, you know, Voldemort. Um, but um, we're just going to pretend that we don't realise that and we think she's a real baddie because that will help advance our political cause. Um, the same question occurred to me when um, one of the kind of leaders of the Twitch fault mob against me back in 2018 was the journalist turned political activist Paul Mason. And I, you know, knew him slightly, been in studio discussions with him a few times before, always behaved perfectly civilly to each other. So this rather shocked me. But um, he, he tweeted uh, after I'd been appointed to the Office for Students that the only reason I'd been placed on this body was to prevent working class children from getting into university because I wanted to perpetuate, you know, the privilege of the upper class. I wanted to exclude working class kids from going to university. Now, you know, the most cursory examination of my record in education would have revealed that that's just complete nonsense. When I was at Oxford, I was involved in a broadening participation program. I'm a member of um, a speaking group which sends speakers to schools up and down the country to try and persuade sixth formers to apply to Oxford and Cambridge and Russell Group universities. I actually spent two years of my life uh, voluntarily uh, setting up a secondary school, the kind of underlying kind of guiding principle of which is to try and help more disadvantaged children get into good universities. And um, it's done incredibly well. 
by that metric. Uh, you know, I'm a member of the Fulbright Commission, which is involved with this program, uh, with um, uh, Peter Lample's organization, the Sutton Trust, to give grants to disadvantaged children, the first people in their families to go to US universities. I mean, it just seemed extraordinary to me that, that, that Paul Mason could assume that of me, that I was this terrible snob uh, who was actually committed to stopping disadvantaged children from getting into university uh, and believed uh, seemingly that that's why I'd been appointed because that was the Tory party's agenda. Uh, and I thought to myself, well, does he really believe that? Or is he just kind of trying to make political hay out of this to kind of uh, help Jeremy Corbyn in some way or to try and smear Theresa May and the Tories more widely? And it's always hard to tell. And perhaps, you know, perhaps he doesn't really know. And maybe all these kind of manic anti-rowling Easters. Maybe they don't really know either. Maybe they don't bother to, to really... Potentially doing it on autopilot. It. Yeah, they're just doing it on autopilot. And I think there's something about, you know, uh, being on social media. If you're, you can't, it's hard to say that to someone's face. You know, uh, if you're looking at someone's face, it, it's hard to assume the worst about them. But it's easier to dehumanize them um, uh, if, if you're just on a keyboard, particularly if you're part of a kind of part of a mob all saying the same things it's like it's a way of avoiding responsibility for dehumanizing someone for, for being malicious if it's you and a thousand ten thousand other people doing it simultaneously then you can sort of you don't need to justify it uh, to your conscience it's easier to do so social media i think encourages this kind of terrible behavior do you enjoy standing up for these things and taking these people on because i don't get me wrong I, I don't doubt it comes from a place of authenticity that you see some injustice and you're standing up for what you know you believe in that's to your credit but you are in the in the trenches you are wrestling with these people in their mud i've had this on twitter myself sometimes where someone has a go at me and i think well you could call it cowardice you could also call it you know laziness or just wanting to do other things but sometimes i think you know i can't even be bothered to engage with this person if they want to think that about me let them what is it within you that you want to put your head above the parapet i suppose i'm naturally quite pugilistic i've always had a kind of uh, joy i've always experienced the joy of battle i like conflict i like kind of charging in head first i've always liked that i guess it's uh, you know just a sort of uh, long-standing part of my psychological makeup um uh, so i don't i don't run from battles i run towards them but like you um i've begun to kind of tire of that on twitter i mean you can't win it's a bit like you feel like um you know sort of gandalf taking on the orc army um he's gonna numped that's what my friend said to me. It's like, you know, as soon as you knock down one, another pops up and then suddenly you're surrounded. And it's uh, and I felt this very much in 2018. Initially, when people started saying these terrible things about me, I would kind of answer back and um, engage them in kind of battle. But after a while, it just seemed completely pointless. I was getting nowhere. Um, so now I just uh, and I'm ashamed to say this because, you know, it, it doesn't quite it doesn't sit that happily with my uh, you know uh, unwavering commitment to free speech but I now just either mute people or block people I just think life's too short um, I don't want to get distracted by having to argue with this particular person uh, so I, I tend to either mute them or block them and just try and ignore what they're saying well thank you for not muting or blocking me thus far but my mother always taught me to be agreeable and to be polite to everyone so uh, I doubt you'd have much cause to. Uh, I mean your father Lord Young, Labour peer, famed sociologist, how much of an influence was he on your life and your desire to sort of stand up for what you believe in? I think he has been quite a strong influence um, whether that's um, because of you know the way I was brought up or my relationship with him or whether it's just that I've inherited some of his genes I don't know I mean he was a very he was a very persistent dogged stubborn man um, uh, who never gave up you know he would always fight a battle until the bitter end when people were advising him that it was hopeless and it was time to kind of you know sue for peace he would carry on battling you know like the like the black knight in monty python um and uh, i've definitely definitely have that same characteristic um he also i mean he, he was a, he was a much better man than me um and um you know really threw himself into good work set up dozens of charities some of which are still thriving today like the 
Open University, University of the Third Age, Witch Magazine. Um, you know, he was one of several people to be involved in setting those things up, but uh, nonetheless, they're thriving today. He was very public spirited, very kind of motivated by compassion, by wanting to help people who uh, were dispossessed, disenfranchised. Uh, he had a much more powerful kind of uh, almost religious Quaker sense of mission than I do. But I think I inherited a little bit of that. And um, I think one of the reasons, you know, I, I took this kind of segue in my career um, around about 2009 and decided, you know, I wanted to set up a school uh, was partly because I'd inherited a little bit of that. Um, and I did discover when doing that, I mean, I, I was involved in education for nine years um, before I was defenestrated. Uh, but during that period, I did get a huge amount of satisfaction from banding together with like-minded, decent people to try and do something important for the local community, um, uh, something that would really resonate, something that would be really meaningful. Um, and the, 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 you know, the, nothing, I think, in my life has given me more, more deep-seated satisfaction, not you know, writing a best-selling book, not having a movie made of that book, not appearing on stage doing the one-man show based on that book. Nothing compares to that experience of of making common purpose with a group of like-minded, well-intentioned people to do something really good that's going to have a really beneficial impact on your community. And still feel very proud that between us, we managed to set up these four schools, which are to this day really thriving. Can I ask sort of the last sort of serious question, which is, you know, what's next for you after all of this? Would you accept a peerage from Boris like, like Claire did? Or do, do, you, do you have unfulfilled ambitions as to what you might do? Are you going to set up a peanut stand in Hyde Park? Is there <laughs> something where you're going to do something completely different? Um, I don't think I'm going to get a peerage anytime soon. I've just written um, quite a critical piece about Boris for The Spectator, uh, just saying how disillusioned I am and how, you know, seeing him talk about things like COVID marshals, you know, that's not the guy I voted for. So um, I think I've now burnt my bridges uh, with Boris and with this government more generally since becoming a kind of energetic lockdown skeptic. What would I like to do uh, in the future? I tend not to, one, one of my shortcomings is I don't tend to think too far ahead. Uh, at the moment, I'm thinking about getting out a book, which is a kind of anthology of the best that we published on Lockdown Skeptics and working with others to try and make this government, you know, behave a bit more sensibly in response to this crisis and um, see everything in the round and not just keep on doubling down on their initial wrong diagnosis and poor response. I'm thinking a lot about that. Um, I'd really like to grow the Free Speech Union. Uh, it's growing quite rapidly as it is. We've got about We've got more now than five, five and a half thousand members. Not bad, given we started in February. I'd like to get to 10,000 by the end of the year. There are so many people that need our help. I feel guilty that we can't help all of them. I want to make the organization large enough so we can. I also think that there's an urgent need for similar organizations across the world, particularly the Anglosphere, hoping to open a branch in the US and then Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa. Uh, so that's, that's, that's sort of, uh, that, that's, the, that's what I'm thinking about. Um, at some point, I'd like to write a book. I've got various book projects. Uh, I've got one called Salem 2.0, the return of the religious police to the public square, uh, which I've been working on for a while. I'd like to publish that in due course if I can. I pretty much abandoned my uh, fantasies of becoming a Hollywood screenwriter and one day standing up on stage and thanking my English teacher as I clutch an Oscar at the Academy Awards. Um, but, still time. Uh, still time, perhaps, yeah. <laughs> What a time doing the, the creating the modern review with Judy Birchall. I mean, inevitably, in hindsight, it all ended in tears. But I mean, what a roller coaster that must have been. Yeah, that was um, a really exciting period in my life. Um, Julie was literally the girl next door. So um, my friend Cosmo Lannisman, who lived two doors from me uh, in Islington, uh, Julie suddenly one day appeared in his house. She'd left Tony Parsons. She'd run off with him. Um, and... Uh, I then got to know her. She became a really close friend. And um, we decided in, I think, uh, around about late 1990 to start this magazine together, The Modern Review. The idea was intellectuals, academics, journalists will write long scholarly articles about 
people like Madonna and Arnold Schwarzenegger and the latest Hollywood blockbusters and best-selling books. Uh, low culture for highbrows, we called it. Smash hits edited by F.R. Leavis. Uh, and I think it was a great concept and quite a novel concept at the time. Um, and we launched the Modern Review in 91, went really well for about four years. Uh, and then Julie left Cosmo for Charlotte Raven and fell out with him, fell out with me. I then produced, uh, she wanted to sack me and make Charlotte the editor. Uh, so I assembled the people on the magazine that were still loyal to me and we produced a greatest hits issue and announced that we were closing the magazine and I said in the editorial why that was and broke the story that Julie had you know Fleet Street's most famous Glenda Slag had become a lipstick lesbian um, and uh, it got a huge amount of press coverage and after that I buggered off to New York um, but one of the interesting things about the Modern Review was that um, it was a victim of its own success. So um, all these Fleet Street newspapers like the Sunday Times and the Guardian and the Observer and the Telegraph immediately recognized that the old school way of approaching mass culture, which was to employ slightly snooty people to kind of make jokes about it and kind of, uh, you know, scornfully kind of ridicule its vulgarity the kind of moronic inferno approach to mass culture that that was out of date and that was um, out of sync with the, their, the the kind of mass of their readers and actually lots of intelligent thoughtful educated people were really passionate about mass culture about different aspects of mass culture so they all changed quite quickly after the modern review kind of got the ball rolling and lots of our better writers and editors were poached in quite short order by by places like the sunday times the sunday times based the culture on the modern review andrew neil will be the first to admit that so it was quite hard to continue after four years anyway because we'd achieved our object which was to try and get the the kind of pillars of the mainstream media to take mass culture more seriously and stop treating it with such snobbish disdain. Because we achieved that object so quickly, it had done what it needed to do after four years. And when Julie and Charlotte did in fact relaunch it a few years later, it didn't last very long. Now, I can't believe we've only got three minutes to do what is, for me, going to be the most enjoyable bit. I absolutely loved How to Lose Friends and Alienate People. I mean, it was years ago that I read it, but uh, I mean, and we've had Graydon Carter on the podcast a couple of months ago, but I mean, moving to New York, that must have been a dream for, you know, most aspiring British writers. And are you surprised that you lasted there as long as you did? <laughs> um, I was, uh, initially, I thought, I'm going to be the next Tina Brown. You know, I'm following in her footsteps. And when Graydon called me in 2000, it, what, 1995 and said, you know, I want you to come out and work for me. I thought that's the call. You know, I, I finally got the call. It's bye bye <laughs> Britain. I'm now going to be operating on a much bigger stage, you know. And, and he did actually indicate that he wanted to introduce me to Cy Newhouse, the owner of Vanity Fair and Condé Nast. And um, maybe I might become an editor of one of the magazines in that stable, maybe details, or maybe I could start my own thing and interest Cy in backing it. So, you know, the world was my oyster. I thought, yeah, I'm going to take Manhattan. Um, and uh, as you'll know, if you've read Tatterley's Friends and Alienate People, it didn't quite work out that way. You know, um, the land of opportunity for me became the land of the unreturned phone call. Um, I didn't take Manhattan. Manhattan took me. It took me out. I lasted at Vanity Fair for about two, two and a half years. Um, Graydon described me as a piece of gum that was stuck to the bottom of his shoe. He just couldn't quite get it off. Uh, but he did gradually start turning down the oxygen until I realized that uh, I'd have to leave or asphyxiate. And uh, I managed to last another couple, uh, couple of years um, freelancing around, doing a column for a free sheet called the New York Press, um, but came back after five years with my tail between my legs, having uh, failed uh, to conquer America. Uh, but at least I got this quite amusing book out of it called How to Lose Friends and Alienate People, which describes my ignominious uh, uh, fall from grace. One of the best books I've ever read, and I'm not just saying that to sort of blow smoke up your ass. I, I thought it was hugely enjoyable and, you know, stuck with me after all these years. Listen, Toby, I know you need to go now, but I think we'll have to get you on again in a few months because there's so much that we haven't had a chance to discuss because obviously it's been rightly dominated by COVID and, and lockdown and all of this. But I just wanted to say thank you ever so much for your time. I hugely appreciate it. Thank you very much. That's very kind. And uh, thank you for your kind words about how to lose friends. Uh, that means a lot.
A Right Angles podcast in association with Big Things Media.